I'd like to invite you all to open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 this morning, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter, Daniel chapter 1. Now, uh, I want to warn you uh, up front, this will not be a standard exposition like I have uh, done before. Uh, Instead, we'll primarily be looking at uh, contemporary applications based on what we read. But I believe that we will agree that these applications come directly from the text. Now, I, uh, I first began studying this passage last year. Uh, many of you know that uh, I was able to finish my um, bachelor's degree in biblical and theological studies from Liberty University online last year, and uh, I began studying this passage and thinking about it uh, while I was getting toward the end of that, and I thought when it you know, came time for me to be up here that I would expand and adapt it and, and bring it to you. Um, one other thing I just want to say by way of introduction is um, I will be teaching this passage using alliteration. If you look in your bulletins, you'll notice that. Um, a little cliche, I admit, uh, <laughs> and it's not what I normally do, but I think in this case it works, so I just thought I would go ahead and just, I thought I would go ahead and do it, so. All right, so Daniel chapter 1. Now, as we begin considering this passage, I want to pose to you all a question. I just want to throw this out there. What is a MacGuffin? That's a funny-sounding word, isn't it? MacGuffin. It is a real word. It is a real word. But what is it? Well, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, a MacGuffin is, quote, an object, event, or character in a film or story that serves to set and keep the plot in motion despite usually lacking intrinsic importance, close quote. Uh, Apparently, uh, as I was researching this, I found out that the term MacGuffin was coined by Alfred Hitchcock in the late 1930s. It was his idea. So to summarize, then, a MacGuffin is usually an object, some prop in a story, although it can be a person. But it is that object or person that the principal characters in a story are chasing after. They're fighting to possess it. It is that prop, that object, which drives the entire plot of the story. Let me give you some examples in film. The Maltese Falcon would be one uh, really classic example. That's a very old film, but it centers around the chase for the statue, the statue of a bird. It was a, a falcon statue, and the protagonists and the antagonists were all fighting to possess this statue for reasons that became apparent as the film went on. Here's another example, The Lost Ark. What was the object that Indiana Jones and the Nazis were fighting to possess? What was it, what was it they were chasing? It was the Ark itself, The Lost Ark. R2-D2 and the Death Star plans in Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. R2-D2 had the Death Star plans inside, uh, inside of him, and Luke Skywalker had him, and the Empire wanted him. That was the object they were chasing. That's the MacGuffin. And one final example, and it's too bad Brian Walker's not here with us. He would, appre- he would appreciate this one. The Ring of Power. The Ring of Power. Well, you remember Frodo had the ring, and Sauron and his evil forces were trying to get the ring. And Frodo's task, you remember, was to take the ring into Mordor, 
to Mount Doom and cast it back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. Now, many fictional stories contain MacGuffins. And I'm pretty sure I just set a Guinness World Record for the number of times the word MacGuffin has been used in a sermon. Thank you, John. I knew you would like that. <laughs> but I would suggest to you this morning that the true story found in the Bible also has MacGuffins. Now, I said before that while most of the time the MacGuffin is an object, it can be a person. And it is that object or person that the protagonist and the antagonist of the story is fighting to find and to possess. A few examples in scripture of MacGuffins would include the seed of the woman, Genesis chapter 3, 15. You remember, Adam and Eve had sinned, and God made a promise that he was going to bring forth a redeemer from the woman, from the seed of the woman. And we know, because uh, since we have the end of the story, we know that that seed of the woman is none other than Jesus Christ himself. But Satan's scheme is to try to thwart that divine plan. Here's another example. The infant Moses in the first chapters of Exodus is a MacGuffin, in a sense. He is hidden by his mother and sister from the murderous rage of Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh had purposed to kill all the Hebrew baby boys, and Moses had to be hidden. Also in Exodus, you could say that the children of Israel are like a MacGuffin. Pharaoh possesses what God wants, his people. And the conflict in the early chapters of Exodus is at least partly over who will possess the children of Israel. And much like the infant Moses in Exodus, the Christ child in the Gospel of Matthew, has to be hidden from Herod the Great, who, like the ancient Pharaoh, had purposed to kill the little baby boys of Bethlehem two years, two years of age and younger. So in a manner of speaking, in that part of the Bible, Christ himself is a MacGuffin. But there is one other MacGuffin I want to consider this morning. There is something that God is seeking, and which the enemy, though not explicitly mentioned here in Daniel chapter 1, is trying to destroy, and that is a holy people. Jesus Christ is the hero of the Bible story. He is the protagonist. But in a sense, we as Christ's holy people are the object that the hero and the villain are warring over. The MacGuffin is somehow set apart from all other props and objects in a story. It is special. It is highly to be prized for one reason or another. So much so that, once again, the protagonist and the antagonist will stop at nothing to obtain it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that the devil is a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. And the Lord Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that God is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. I conclude then that we as humanity, and especially as Christ's people, are like the MacGuffin of the story of the Bible. But how exactly can God's people be holy amidst a decidedly unholy and often hostile culture, a culture that is becoming increasingly more evil, more unholy, and more hostile? I hope to partially answer that question today out of Daniel chapter 1. What I hope to do is show from Daniel chapter 1 three principles for engaging a pagan culture, 
three principles for engaging a pagan culture. But before we dive together into the text of Daniel, I just want to say one other thing, just one more thing. I feel that I need to make an important clarification about what I'm going to do in this Old Testament text. I am planning on suggesting moral principles out of this text. But I wish to stress that in doing so, this does, it does not amount to moralism. What is moralism? Well, moralism is basically taking a text, usually a narrative from the Bible, often the Old Testament, and extracting moral principles from them without regard to Christ, who is the center of the Bible's story. And this often leads to the impression, unintentional though it may often be, that we can earn favor with God through our moral efforts. I'm sure most of us at some point have heard the skin-crawling, out-of-context sermon on David and Goliath and slaying the giants in your life. I'm sure we've all heard that one. I know I have. We must always stress the Christ-centered nature of the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus himself taught that the entire Old Testament was about him. You remember the resurrected Christ and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and how beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in the scriptures all things concerning himself. Similarly, in John chapter 5, Jesus chides the religious leaders. He says, you search the scriptures. You think by them you have eternal life, but they are those which speak of me, is what he says. Nevertheless, however, the New Testament does instruct Christians to learn from both the positive and negative elements of belief and behavior from the Old Testament. For example, Romans 15 verse 4 says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, speaking of Israel's desert wanderings, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, classic passage on the inspiration and sufficiency of the Bible says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith is another example. And finally, James chapter 5. James exhorts his readers to faithful prayer and uses Elijah as an example of that faithful prayer. And so with that said, I'd like to invite you all to stand this morning and follow along with me as I read in Daniel chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 1 and go to verse 8. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Listen, church, to the word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, 
and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. You may be seated. Firstly, I want to key in on verse 8. And this is where I find principle number 1. I'll read verse 8 again. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So principle number one out of verse eight, principle number one for being holy in an unholy culture is to be resolved. To be resolved. Daniel made a firm resolution in his heart that he would not defile himself And we as Christians must make the same resolution today. You see, there was something about the king's food which was unclean. It was not kosher. Maybe it had been offered up to idols. Maybe it contained pork or shellfish. We don't know. But it was unclean. And Daniel knew it. Now in the New Covenant, we know that food is not the issue anymore. We're aware from several New Testament texts that all foods are now clean. God is more concerned with our hearts. The Lord Jesus taught as much in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. Christ himself says, and he called, or it says he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Paul taught much the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, when he writes, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. In Daniel's day, however, the old covenant was still in force, and certain foods were off-limits to the Jewish people. So Daniel made a resolution in himself not to eat, not to partake of the unclean food. But leaving the issue of food, there is an application today for us as believers in Jesus Christ. We today, like Daniel, are also Israelite exiles in mystery Babylon. And there are unclean things all around us that we must resolve to abstain from if we are to be holy. Some are more obvious than others, of course. I, don't, I probably don't have to spend too much time exhorting you to abstain from sexual immorality or pornography or things of that nature. Lying, cheating, those are the obvious ones. But some are perhaps a little less obvious. 
Things like gossip, slander, libel. Here are a few examples of things that I think that Christians ought to abstain from that fall in that category. There's a tendency today to refer to difficult middle-aged women as Karen. I don't think that's appropriate for Christians. In the ambulance business in which I've worked for the last six years as an EMT, we have a tendency to refer to homeless individuals as urban outdoorsmen. And, as, and while there is a comedic element to that, one day after having used that particular moniker on an individual, the Holy Spirit pricked my conscience and said, stop that. And all I could say was, yes, sir, and repent. Foul language? Yeah, we know about that one. How about dirty joking? Dirty joking. Did you know that the Bible explicitly forbids dirty joking in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4? Things like, that's what she said, and so on. Those are not good. Those are not appropriate. These are not things that Christians should partake in. And I don't want to be legalistic, but there are probably, as time has gone on and our culture has gotten more and more godless, there are increasingly so many TV shows and movies that are just not good, just not good for us to watch, and the list goes on. But you see, Daniel was resolved to be holy in his context, and we as Christians should emulate that in our own context today. One of the most famous examples in later church history of someone being resolved to be holy is none other than, none other than Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century American preacher. Now, Edwards is notable for many things, but one of the things he is famous for is his list of 70 resolutions. One of Edwards' biographers writes this, Probably in late fall 1722, perhaps in response to the difficulties in sustaining high levels of spiritual intensity, Jonathan undertook the Puritan practice of framing a set of resolutions to discipline himself, adding new entries as needed. Here's a small sampling of some of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. I'm not going to read all 70 of them. <laughs> I'll only read three. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general, resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many soever and how great soever. Here's the second one. Resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. And thirdly, resolved in narrations, never to speak anything but the pure and simple verity. Now, on the one hand, I would caution all of us concerning the Puritan tendency toward morbid introspection, although self-examination is a good exercise. But on the other hand, there is a reason why, 300 years later, Edwards' resolutions are still being read and considered. Jonathan Edwards understood that in order to live for God in the middle of a society that rejects him in his ways, it was going to take a supernatural resoluteness. You see, following Jesus is not a sprint, 
It is a marathon. It is the long, difficult, narrow way of costly obedience. And this inner disposition of resoluteness in following the Lord is something that we must, by God's continuing grace, continue to deliberately cultivate. The Apostle Peter understood this when he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. We read it earlier in our preparation for worship. He writes, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. A continual inner heart attitude of setting apart Christ the Lord, Christ as the Lord, is how we can be resolved to be holy in the Babylon of contemporary Western culture. But more than this, there is another principle of cultural engagement that I believe we can find in Daniel chapter 1. After resolving within himself that he would obey God, Daniel made use of the second principle, that of respect. Look again with me at verse 8 and all the way to verse 16. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. I want us to notice something. Daniel did not make demands, threats, or ultimatums. He appealed to someone higher than he made his convictions known, and respectfully and tactfully requested an alternative. And in this, Daniel was not alone. If you go back in your Old Testaments, both Joseph and David also gave respect and submission to those in authority over them, even when they were mistreated. You remember, Joseph rendered obedience and faithful, servants, faithful service to Potiphar in his house after being sold into slavery by his brothers. So much so that even when given the opportunity, he would not dishonor his master's marriage bed. Later, of course, after being unjustly accused and imprisoned, he gave that same faithful service to his jailer and ultimately to Pharaoh himself. God exalted Joseph after Joseph's life of faithfulness in the midst of his suffering. Or consider David. Despite being unjustly pursued by the insane and murderous King Saul, twice refused to kill the king when he caught him in a vulnerable position. 
1 Samuel chapter 24, when Saul was, uh, excuse me, when David was hiding in a cave, Saul goes into that very same cave. He doesn't know David's in there, but he goes into that cave to relieve himself. And David's men, they see Saul there and they say, hey, David, this is your chance. The Lord has delivered him into your hands. Kill him. Take the throne. And David said, no, I won't do it. I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. He trusted God. Two chapters later, 1 Samuel 26, David and his men are in the camp of Saul, and they see Saul sleeping. Once again, David's men are like, here's your chance. The Lord has given your enemy into your hands. Kill him. And David said no. Once again, he said no. I will not strike the Lord's anointed. I will not stretch out my hand. The Lord will fight for me. The Lord will give me justice. And David took Saul's spear and water jug. And on both occasions, when Saul was made aware, David said, I could have killed you. I had you right where I wanted you. I could have. Why do you do this to me? And on both occasions, Saul said, you're right, David. You're right. You're a more righteous man than I. Saul didn't stay that way, of course, but But David did the right thing. David deferred to God's justice. He refused to harm the the Lord's anointed, and God would eventually exalt David for his obedience. Even when we are resolved, even when we as Christians are standing for the truth, even when we know that we are in the right and that God is with us, even when we must be terse, direct, and to the point, there must still be a posture of respect and humility. God himself will fight for us. I want to give you, I want to tell you a story that happened to me. I, I don't want to spend too much time on personal anecdotes, but um, in this case, I thought they might be appropriate. Years ago, uh, it was shortly after Katie and I were married. We were living in Tampa, and I was working for a, um, a safety supply company. This is a company that, you know, sold hard hats, safety harnesses, cones, flares, things like that, mostly to construction companies. And uh, I worked in the warehouse. And uh, my job was to uh, fill the orders. So a ticket would come out of the printer. It would say, all right, here, here are the things for this order. Go pick these items and get them ready to be shipped. Shipping and receiving was uh, part of my job. So that's what I would do. Well, one day, an order came in for fire extinguishers. This company in another state had ordered fire extinguishers. And uh, these fire extinguishers were to be flown next day air to another state. There was just one problem. Fire extinguishers, when they go on an aircraft, have to have certain hazmat stickers. And my company did not have them. We didn't have the proper certifications or what have you. But I was told by my boss, look, just put these fire extinguishers in the box, prep them for next day air shipping, and let's just be done with it. I said to the boss, I said, boss, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. It's, it's illegal. It's unethical. I have to, you have to have hazmat stickers on, on hazardous material. I mean, these, you know, compressed air and gas can turn into a projectile. No, do it. Go do it. And I said, I'm sorry, boss, I can't do it. I, I just can't do it. I'm sorry. And I prayed. But, I, and I, and I, but again, I didn't say, yeah, forget it, boss. I'm not going to do it. I just said, I'm sorry, boss. I can't do this. I can't do this. I stood my ground and I prayed and the Lord fought for me. 
Several months later, when I left that job to go take another, uh, the employees gave me a going away card, and the boss himself wrote in that card, Christian, we're going to miss you around here, and you've got really great ethics. God fought for me. A couple years later, I was a shift manager at Pizza Hut in southeast Georgia. And I remember one Friday night, southeast Georgia, it was February, and we got hit with a freak snowstorm. And I don't mean a little bit of snow. This wasn't a dusting. This was a lot. And I was 26 years old at this point in Floridian. I'd never seen snow in my life. And most of the people I was with, you know, in southeast Georgia, they don't get a lot of snow. They'd never seen snow in their lives. And this particular Pizza Hut was in a rural environment, and there were a lot of dirt roads, and it was Friday night. And uh, I can honestly tell you that was the worst working night of my life. I've never had a worse day at work but that night in February in 2010. And because there was all kinds of snow, and because it was a rural area, and it was Friday night, nobody wanted to get out and go get their pizza. They wanted it delivered. And I was looking around, and I'm like, I've got maybe two or three delivery drivers all driving front-wheel drive vehicles on dirt roads in several inches of snow, and they've never had to do this in their lives. I just don't think it's safe. And I grounded all deliveries. I made a decision. It was, you know, my shift. Well, the word came in from corporate, no, you're going to send those deliveries. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't send these guys out. I can't hang them out to dry. They're going to get stuck. And it's, it's dark and it's snowy and it, they're just not going to make it. And uh, I don't know that I've ever had so much verbal abuse from customers and even managers before, but I stood my ground and Eventually, the next day, I did get written up. I thought I was going to lose my job, but I didn't. But eventually, my boss came and said, you know what, Christian, you did the right thing. I still have to write you up, but you did the right thing. And I tell those stories not to, not to say how great I am, but to say how great God is. I tell you these stories because those were occasions in my own life when I had to take, when I had to take a stand and make my convictions known, but I did so respectfully, and I prayed and I trusted that God himself would be the one to fight for me, and he did. God vindicated me. God vindicated Joseph. He vindicated David. He vindicated Daniel. I prayed for God's protection in his favor. He answered me. But continuing on, verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, to allow him not to defile himself. See, God's supernatural protection is already on Daniel, just as it was for me in those two instances I just told you about, and I suspect that part of this may be the result of Daniel's respectful response to the fears of the chief of the eunuchs. You see, the chief of the eunuchs is being put in a difficult position. Number one, he's a eunuch. Number two, he recognizes that this request would endanger his life because in the natural, Daniel and his friends could not maintain adequate physical strength on a vegetable-only diet. This would reflect badly on the chief of the eunuchs and thus the king might kill him for shirking his responsibilities. For Daniel's part, he would no doubt have been willing to suffer for his convictions if his request had been denied. He doubtless would have submitted to God's will in fact, as we all know, Daniel's friends in chapter 2 would be put in that position. 
And Daniel himself in chapter 6 would be put in that same position in the incident with the lion's den. But in this case, God gave Daniel and his friends favor in the eyes of his superiors and acted supernaturally on their behalf. He strengthened their body on just the vegetables. As an aside, uh, I remember, here's just another short story. I remember years ago, uh, this is, uh, again, soon after Katie and I were married, it was the same year, um, we were part of a church that was of a uh, decidedly charismatic inclination. And this particular church was meeting in a hotel banquet hall every Sunday, and we were looking for uh, a permanent building to meet in. And as part of our prayers for this new building, several of us engaged in different types of fasting. Katie and I chose to do the Daniel fast. The Daniel fast is based on this text in Daniel 1, and it consists of eating only vegetables and drinking only water for 10 days. And having gone through that experience, I can tell you absolutely that what God did for Daniel and his friends really was a miracle. Because let me tell you, I didn't make it 10 days. It was an absolutely miserable experience. Katie, you remember. (laughs) It didn't matter how many baby carrots I ate. My hunger would just not go away. And I had a splitting headache the entire time. I did not make it those 10 days. I think I made it three. And then I was like, no, I'm done. (laughs) Now, in our case, we probably will not have to engage in any special diet to serve God in modern mystery Babylon. But we will likely have to make some sacrifices. We are going to live lifestyles that are different. We are going to have to take the long way of obedience rather than the shortcut of compromising with sin. But as believers in Jesus, we do so while adopting a posture of respect. Earlier, I read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which tells us to resolve to consider Christ the Lord as holy as we explain the reason for our hope. But I didn't read the rest of the verse. See, Peter goes on to say that we must explain the reason for our hope with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And as we do so, along with resoluteness to obey God, we will find God fighting for us in surprising and supernatural ways. And just as God fought for me and vindicated me in those instances I told you about, he will surely do the same for all of us. And as Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah resolutely and respectfully stayed holy in Babylon. God gave them the spiritual resources needed to be productive and impactful. And this leads me to principle number three, be resourceful. Be resourceful. Pick up with me again in verse 17 all the way to the end of the chapter. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, 
And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now I want us to notice something in this text. It's something that we all doubtless already know, but it's always good to be reminded. I want us to notice the absolute sovereignty of God in this entire chapter. In verse 2, God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion with the chief of the eunuchs. And here in verse 17, God gave these four young men learning and skill. It was God who superintended their learning in literature and wisdom. Now, they were already gifted and talented. We learned that all the way back in verse 4. But as talented as they were, they still needed the supernatural hand of God to guide them in their studies. Now, Daniel and his friends would still have to make the effort to learn. God's supernatural power is not a magic wand. It's not like we can simply pray and sit back while knowledge and learning are absorbed by osmosis. But God worked on their behalf to give them understanding and wisdom. Daniel and his friends were learning, in this case, the wisdom and literature of the Chaldeans. In Acts chapter 7, verse 22, we're told by Stephen that Moses was trained in the wisdom of the Egyptians. For us today, unless we have teaching jobs in the academy, we're not learning ancient Egyptian or Babylonian literature. But we are living in the world. And for us today, uh, this might correspond to a trade, a skill, a discipline that we can learn at school or for our jobs. See, whatever our particular context might be, if that's where we are led by God's Spirit, that same Spirit is going to provide the skills necessary to succeed as we put in the work. God was with these young men, and he granted them the resources to have favor with the king. For Daniel, God gifted him with what may have been a precursor to New Testament spiritual gifts. In Daniel's case, just as with Joseph before him, Daniel was given the ability to interpret dreams and visions. Christians today have a diversity of spiritual gifts. These spiritual gifts are endowments sovereignly distributed by the Holy Spirit to allow us to minister to one another in the church, and in many cases, these spiritual gifts can even be used to be salt and light in the wider world. And Daniel's faithful stewardship of the gifts God had given him allowed him to have a long, productive, and impactful career serving not only Babylon, but Persia as well. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were God's men obeying God's commands in God's way, and all the while living in exile in pagan Babylon. And like Daniel and his friends, we too are exiles living away from the land of promise, sojourning in mystery Babylon. Like these four young men, I pray that we might learn to live holy and godly lives, lives that are marked by resoluteness to obey God, respectful interaction with those we encounter, 
and spirit-empowered resourcefulness. And while modern mystery Babylon, taken collectively, will always hate and persecute believers in Jesus, may God grant us favor and compassion with many of the individual non-believers we live with as we live as the MacGuffin of God's storyline in Scripture. Amen.